You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Bring along the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies to add a sprinkle of joy to your workday. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to Norfolk. Or is it Charlotte? Could also be Knoxville. The prefab hotel suites make it impossible to tell. Holiday Inns, Ramada Inns, Sheridan Motor Inns, they all blur into one great antiseptic room the carpet worn by the door and someone's scarf thrown over the bed lamp in a desperate attempt to create an atmosphere. Wherever you go, it's basically the same place. It's June 1972. Or maybe not. The dim recollection of fireworks would indicate that it must be July, but determining a more specific date is impossible, at least until you figure out where you are. And that's not worth the hassle. There's a party in someone's room. Mostly the same faces, but also a few new ones. They'll be gone by tomorrow. There's music, booze, and smoke, but not that kind of smoke. In some circles, it's still considered in poor taste to whip out joints and spark up in mixed company. If you want that, you'll have to retire to the bathroom. A series of suggestive eye contact and subtle gestures will tell you when. The Rolling Stones and their extensive 40-person entourage are in the middle of their North American tour. They're also in the middle of the United States, and the boredom is everywhere. It greets you in the morning when you awake in yet another strange town, and it tucks you in at night when you try to come down from being wired and get some sleep. It's impossible to maintain your sanity or your basal metabolism on the road. And the changes that come down are invariably harder on the supporting personnel than on the band. At least the musicians know why they're there. Every night they climb up on stage and have thousands of people shout their names and tell them that for one moment they are God and all that is important in the world. Everyone else has to work a little harder to find a reason to get out of bed.
The Torahs eliminated the need for ordinary tasks, the ones that provide shape to each day. Consequently, time starts to lose its meaning. The drug-taking also doesn't help. In 1972 America, the style is to mix your poisons completely. This means various drugs and large amounts of whiskey. It was though there weren't enough chemicals in all the world to blot out the pain of just being alive. The doping on the STP tour intensified to the point where people's faces began to change shape. The skin tightens around their mouths and eyes, and the flesh disappears from under their cheekbones, giving them that gone, wasted look that's so favored in high fashion circles. Some people do no more than drink a lot of beer, smoke too many cigarettes, and take an occasional upper to stay awake. Others use the tour as an excuse to plumb the limits of inner space. In general, this means that things are happening in a dreamlike haze at all times. Actions are occurring and you know you're involved in them, but it's all shadow play. The signal comes and you make your way to the bathroom. Waiting your turn while crouched in the tub, you notice a lanky, mustachioed man casually reach under the sink and pull out a drain pipe. This is the single funniest thing that anyone in this room has ever seen, and peals of laughter ricochet off the tiles. Without a word, everyone knows what to do. It's tour telepathy at its finest. Someone reaches up and pulls the shower curtain off the bar. Another yanks the toilet paper holder out of the wall. In rapid succession, the toilet's taken apart, then the flush cabinet, the shower rods, the handles, the shower head, the towel rack. Everything that's removable is removed. Everyone gets more hysterical with each volley. Here and here, take that, top this. Then the poor soul hosting this hotel room party enters to use the toilet, only to discover that his bathroom is now a retail plumbing supply outlet. The gleefully guilty party is asked to leave. But there are other rooms, to be sure, and other substances. En route first class through America, in another city, another day was about to begin. Getting high seemed as good a way to relate to it as any. That description comes courtesy of Robert Greenfield, the legendary rock journalist who served as the dedicated Stones correspondent for Rolling Stone magazine as a 20-something in the early 70s. He was there for the high highs of the band's 1972 tour, and he was also there for some of the lows. Everyone knows that the road gets grueling, but seldom has it been documented in such harrowing clarity. The STP tour is a karmic demonstration of Newton's third law of thermodynamics. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So for every night thrilling a sold-out crowd with superhuman stage theatrics, there's a long, dark night of the soul, alone in a strange room with enough drugs to leave you teetering on the brink of sanity and madness and life and death. After the show, in the empty 3 a.m. hotel corridors of America, there's nothing to do but take another pill, smoke another joint, do another line, and try to find someone to spend the night with. In addition to Greenfield and his never-before-heard tapes of the Stones in their exile on Main Street era glory, we'll also be joined by his friend and tourmate Gary Stromberg, a rock PR supremo who's represented a whole jukebox of the 20th century's greatest artists. He also had a hand in the hotel bathroom destruction. 
My name's Jordan Runtog, and this is the Stones Touring Party. One month into the tour, it's hard to pretend anymore. The thrill is gone. All the things that were going to happen on the road have already happened at least a thousand times. The various celebrities have departed, not to return until the final gig in New York City. The all-important four-day break is over. No more afternoons spent sipping rum punches on a beach in the Virgin Islands. What remains is a solid month of gigs. Young bands would salivate at the opportunity, but for the Stones, it's a relatively mundane case of getting up on stage each night and making the 15-song set sound fresh. It's the basic showbiz proposition. Go out there and break a leg, kid. Make them laugh, make them cry. Doesn't matter how many times you've done it before. Sometimes they'd start to play a song and drummer Charlie Watts would think, didn't we do this one already? Oh wait, that was last night. It could be hard to tell sometimes. For Gary Stromberg, there's no other way to put it. These days felt like a slog. It was the dog days shows. There you, you go. Know. Yeah, it like was, where? Like Indianapolis? Yeah. <laughs> he couldn't get excited about it. No, it was just, it, it's like a baseball season. It was, they had dog days. There was a drudgery. The novelty of the start of a tour had worn off. Now we just got to work, you know. And, and when you go to Indianapolis, you know, what are you going to do for diversions? There's not a lot of excitement in some of those places. It was just grinding it out. Repetition and, and just, the, it's a groundhog day. You know, you wake ah. up every day and it's the same thing you did. And like when you look at the nightstand to know where you are, what city that you're in, uh, for real, not just playing around, <laughs> you don't know where you are. The band's barometer is Keith Richards. He's more easily read than anyone else, with his emotions always close to the surface. Now he looks wasted, drawn, and drained by the heat. After a few destabilizing weeks, it's a struggle to keep himself motivated. He reflected on those down days when talking to Robert Greenfield shortly after the tour wrapped in 1972. Here he is, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archive. I never, I never listen to a straight. Uh, only, only ever feel in the last couple of days that I've had enough of it, you know, and I'm so glad it's over. But I can sustain interest in the tour for as long as it goes on, you know. I can always, I can keep that high going, that road thing going for a long time and they all can you know if you know you've got to be on the road for from up until july the whatever it is the 28th or the 26th you make it you know you, you pace yourself and you and you make it but now they've hit the real america loosely defined as the space between the coastal media centers there's plenty that's good about it and plenty that's bad but for the Stones' purposes, the bad tended to outweigh the good. One bad element is the lack of suitable accommodations. It says as much in the STP internal newsletter. Yes, they have one. We're about to hit the nadir of the tour as far as hotels are concerned, it read upon hitting one Midwestern town, name redacted to preserve civic pride. We really did try, but due to circumstances, even holiday inns were unavailable, so we're stuck. According to Mick Jagger, the group had made a conscious effort to avoid especially luxe hotels. They had an entourage of some three dozen people, after all. And the principal objective of the tour was to bank money. 
But even so, these flea bags weren't exactly what Jagger had in mind. We didn't stay in the cheapest, fucking shitty, horrible hotels, some but nevertheless, that some, some of them were pretty shitty, cheap, cheap and horrible. Well, we based the thing on that they have to be less than holiday in prices. You know, because the thing is that you can spend all the money in hotels that you come out with nothing, and then everyone says, "Hey, you can't nothing but that 50 grand that you might have made." You know, and you can spend each. 20 grand if I stay in good hotels, probably more, I don't know, I don't know the figures, you know, but I mean, I know that if I say we should stay in Holiday Inns, and then someone came up with a bright idea of saying, well, let's stay cheaper than Holiday Inns, so we did. The After Hours Entertainment also left something to be desired. One well-meaning promoter threw the STP entourage a backyard tiki party at a ranch house in suburban Denver. You know, flaming torches next to the basketball hoop, Wiki-wiki luau tables alongside a sprinkler, plastic wading pools crammed with cores, Diet Pepsi, and ice. The whole bit. It's like the Stones crashed your grandparents' 4th of July party. Robert Frank, the Stones tour documentarian, made a similar observation. It's like a bar mitzvah, he marveled, and they put us on the podium. Watching the two cultures mix was a fascinating anthropological phenomenon. Coke snorters clogged the hallway bathrooms with the good towels laid out. The kitchens crammed with very high members of the STP squad, chipping away at frozen cartons of ice cream procured from the freezer. The locals in attendance do their best not to stare, but it's a challenge. Anybody seen Jagger? One very stoned guest asks. I gotta talk with him. Standing right next to the kid is Mick Jagger. Clad in a feathery blue boa top, there's no one else this man could be tonight other than Mick Jagger. Oh, he just left, Jagger tells the guy with a note of sympathy in his voice. He's gone, man. As offstage life reaches its low point, the STP crew starts making its own fun. Anything to blow off steam. Usually it was silly stuff, like swapping limos at red lights. One time, the road crew started a shaving cream fight in a hotel drugstore. Often they would entertain themselves by throwing post-show parties in their hotel rooms, the only venue that guaranteed both safety and a hassle-free environment. These gatherings were rarely confined to just one room, and often could be somewhat noisy. One morning on the STP private jet, the entourage exchanged gossip from the night before. Man, I heard someone blasting soul records until 7 a.m., someone observed. Keith Richards turned around with a big smile. Yeah, that was us. You should have stopped by. You were on the 11th floor, too? Ninth, came the reply. Oh, Keith muttered. I guess we were a bit loud. He doesn't speak again for the remainder of the flight. Keith aside, the Stones were generally more quiet during their off hours. Charlie Watts endures his insomnia by making meticulous drawings of each of his rooms on the tour carefully recording all the beds he sleeps in from multiple angles. By the time the tour ends, there are 101 drawings in his sketchbook. Guitarist Mick Taylor embarks on an impressive self-education process and begins to read avidly. If someone mentions something that he hasn't read, he makes a mental checkmark to put it on his list. He begins to write, both poetry and prose, and learns how to read music in order to begin playing piano. Mick Jagger takes to staying holed up in his room for long stretches, 
insulated from the pressure of, well, being Mick Jagger. This becomes a fairly common response to road fatigue, an almost monastic test of inner strength to see how long you can take the confines of your own little cubicle before you ultimately break down and make a phone call to find out where the party is, which then starts the merry-go-round all over again. Usually the most unflappable of the group, even he was beginning to buckle under the strain. I mean, you find yourself getting crazy on anything like that, or? Sure, I was completely mad. It's a total thing, is it? I mean, it's just the craziness of accepting anything that happens. Cause yeah, anything, anything goes, and, and it's all such a small conclave of people, and it has to be like that. Anything did go in that small conclave of people, and it made for some strange bedfellows. After all, people alone in their rooms were rarely just alone in their rooms. Bed swapping was common in ways that seemed to defy basic social decorum. But then again, the Stone's dating history reads like the first draft of a telenovela. Here's just a quick primer. In the mid-60s, Keith Richards was approached by the beautiful chanteuse Marianne Faithful. But upon learning that Mick was smitten, Keith set them up instead, and they dated for the rest of the decade. Keith then stole the heart of bandmate Brian Jones's girlfriend, Anita Pallenberg, who then began rather blatantly having an affair with Mick Jagger during sessions for Exile on Main Street. When she became pregnant a year before the STP tour kicked off, she couldn't be sure who the father was. Needless to say, the Glimmer Twins' emotional entanglements ran deep, only their exceptional ability to compartmentalize kept them able to function without killing each other. The relationship between these two guys and the women in both of their lives, that's another 12-hour podcast. You're not going to cover that in any succinct way, and it's not understandable. I mean, I'll say this as a general statement. The level of... I don't know what to call it. Sexual freedom within the inner circle of the Stones tour in terms of who was with who on any given night, I couldn't believe what was going on. You know, like finding out that somebody who'd been somebody's girlfriend throughout the tour, well, she was with Keith and then it was with Mick and they didn't seem to mind. I, I can't explain it. It was another universe. You know, alternate universe, different rules, no rules. I don't know. You tell me, Gary. No, I, th I think you're correct. I, I don't understand that either. Did people get hurt by doing that? I, mean, I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. It was I don't think so. It was just understood. I mean, again, in terms of context, the women were as sexually free as the men, which was not common at that time, even in rock and roll. These women with them were not victims or groupies. They had so much power. These brief encounters weren't limited to just members of the STP entourage. No, there were others. You saw them rather than met them, gathered in the hallways outside the Stones hotel room. Beautiful ladies with expensive clothes, false eyelashes, burnt sienna hair, and glittering three-inch fingernails. They seemed tough, at least until a door popped open and outstrolled Mick Jagger. This usually sent the ladies frantically reaching for their cigarettes. Standard procedure when you're trying to play it cool and pretend you don't know who Mick Jagger is. It's only a cosmic coincidence that you're standing within whispering distance of his hotel room in the early morning hours. Mick was often passed handwritten letters, complete with full addresses and phone numbers, and sometimes an obscene limerick for good measure. But the favorite was Keith, 
a potent mix of renegade pirate and soft-spoken vulnerable gentleman. His sexual appetite was as prodigious as his appetite for drugs, and largely fueled by the same desire to escape. Both appetites seemed to veer dangerously close to addiction. Is there that thing, you know, I mean, somebody like you feel driven to be with somebody, whether or not you want to be with them particularly or not? Yeah, you end up with a lot of <laughs> Just because they're there, you know, find that the show in itself isn't the release that you need. It isn't everything. You realize after the show that there's other hang-ups that you've got to take care of, too, you know. I mean, if it's with somebody that you wouldn't normally sort of go out of your way to <laughs> associate with. Uh, Some incredible rumors, I don't know if I should check them with you or not. Might as well. <laughs> well I've heard 17 chicks in one day. Me? Mm. <laughs> it's in the text. I don't know who told her to. That is... Not physically possible. Not for me. <laughs> As one STP crew member ungallantly but realistically observed, there might be 35 women desperate to sleep with the stones, and only five stones. The math wasn't hard to work out. Gary Stromberg was a beneficiary of this equation. I was a gatekeeper in some respects, you know, so I could provide you access. And it was very apparent that there were a lot of women in the periphery that wanted access. And, you know, I could do it when it was easy, and that's what I did. There were a lot of women that I knew from Los Angeles that would fly in just to get close to the stones, and I could provide easy access to that. So I took advantage of those opportunities and largely under the influence that, you know, but I just had a wild time. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. 
Wear it like no one else. For the Rolling Stones on tour, their nightly concerts were a built-in pressure release valve, one that gave some sense of order and meaning to their existence. The rest of the STP crew didn't have this luxury. Keith Richards was sympathetic to the fact that, for most of his roadmates, there was nowhere for this excess energy and insanity to go. He discussed the matter with Robert Greenfield back in 1972. Here he is, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. You see, for people that are going up on that stage every night and sweating it out, they can take a lot more of that shit. First of all, because they're getting that constant exercise every night and sweating it out and releasing it, and they're pushing themselves to that limit and they're expecting to push themselves to that limit. But for people that aren't doing that and just hanging around and getting stoned and just every, just you know watching the show and getting stoned, that's another thing because you haven't got any real point of release for all that. You know, it just seems to go on and on. You know, without there being a highlight, or a high point to the day. You know. This goes a long way in explaining why the birth of the modern rock tour in the early 70s coincided with pioneering experiments in the art of hotel room destruction. These rooms were a killer. No matter how high you get, it was still like being inside a bottle of mouthwash with plain green and clean white plastic-coated wood-finished walls and ceilings or furniture with no sharp edges or too bright colors. The very space you occupy, with its institutional blandness, makes you desperate for any kind of rush. Horn player Bobby Keys was a fan of flushing firecrackers down the toilet. You get yourself one with them waterproof fuses and light it, and boom! You blow up a crapper in some salesman's room three floors down. A favorite story that makes the rounds concerns a roadie who walked into a hotel room and asked its occupants if they wanted to see a psychedelic light show. The response was immediate, hell yes. So the roadie takes his pants down and pees all over the back of the TV set, sending sparks shooting out of the picture tube. Hilarious. Hotel rooms are viewed as disposable. One time, the SCP tax squad thoughtfully disconnected all the phones in everyone's rooms to ensure that everyone got an undisturbed night's sleep. Bobby Keys forgot this when he woke up the next morning. Unable to get a dial tone, he smashes his phone to bits until all that's left is the dial. And then, to prove a point, he goes downstairs and orders one of everything off the room service menu. Soon after check-in one day, or possibly that same day, tour production manager Chip Monk decides that the lamp in his room is a little tacky. So he unplugs it and drops it out the window, five stories down into a courtyard. The manager comes running. He's trembling on the brink of fury. Did you throw your lamp out the window? He demands. Chip neither confirms or denies. I want a lamp in this room, he says simply. Immediately. Anyone else would have been thrown out. Immediately. But Chip is in possession of that voice, the one familiar to Woodstock attendees as the MC for those magical three days. It's a voice so respectable that it would cause waiters at White Glove Upper East Side establishments to jump. The manager doesn't know what to do. I, uh, look here, sir, we saw a lamp. 
Chip holds up his hand. Do you expect me to stand here and listen to your problems? There is no lamp in this room. I require a lamp in order to be able to do the great quantity of work that faces me. Because you are the manager of this hotel, I'm requiring your assistance by asking you to send me a lamp to my room. Is that clear? It is, sir. Yes, sir. And although it's perfectly clear that Chipmunk has thrown the lamp out of the window in the first place, there's something about him that makes it a crime not to do what he says. He's clearly one of those people who's above or beyond or just plain outside the law. No more than five minutes later, the bellhop comes trundling upstairs with a new lamp. Chip, the technical genius who designed and built the stone's elaborate stage and innovative lighting rig, views hotels as his own personal playground. When a dose of boredom and a few uppers hit his brilliant brain, the result was gleeful chaos and destruction that was far too creative to be considered offensive. Gary Stromberg often got roped in as accomplice. Here's another cocaine-inspired story that I only know from hearsay. I'm not trying to absolve myself. I'm guilty. But um, I think it was Atlanta, Chip in the Hyatt House, 3 a.m., can't sleep, won't sleep, not going to sleep. And so the atrium went up floors and floors, and every floor was lined That's with these— That's my story. The, Go. Let me, let me tell Please. that one. That was in Chicago. Uh, the high, Regency Hyatt House was brand new. It was in its first year. It was a beautiful hotel near the airport. And in the atrium, it was—I don't know how to describe it, but the, the, uh, there was a central atrium in the hotel that went, and it went up like 10 stories, the hotel. But the center of the, in the lobby was open, and you could look straight up for those 10 floors. Along the exterior, uh, all the way around were uh, aisles— in front of all the, the rooms with a uh, potted plants on the uh, railing. There were potted plants all the way around. And in these potted plants were these little feeding tubes that were automatically fed water. Daily basis, yeah, nightly yeah, day, yeah. watered every day. It was on a, on a timer. Yeah, timer, yeah. So Chip, uh, this was Chip, I did it with Chip because he came and got me. And come on, we're going. Chip always spent all of his free time trying to devise ways to create havoc. So we went around this exterior on the top floor of the hotel and took every little feeding tube out from every plant and hung it over the railing so that when they put turned the water on to feed the thing, it would rain in the interior of the hotel. And he caused it to rain. And, and not just a drizzle, it rained. <laughs> in the lobby of the hotel, and they went crazy. I mean, they would, you know, can you imagine what it's like? All of a sudden, it starts raining in the inside of a hotel. That same hotel, by the way, Chip, uh, on another inspired evening, decided that he wanted to remove everything that you could remove from the bathroom. So he took out, literally, he took out all of the plumbing, the toilet, all of the piping that went into the toilet, the shower. He took everything that a plumber could possibly remove from the thing, and he had it piled up in his room. <laughs> Just for, it was like as a child working up a jigsaw puzzle. Being on the road with the Rolling Stones gave ordinary people license to behave in a way that they normally never would, never could. Financial woes, legal concerns, or just plain old common decency would prohibit it. Sometimes this brought out the best in people and yielded spectacular results. But often, being swept up in the climate-controlled world of the elite had a corrosive effect on the human psyche. Chip Monk is a perfect case study. 
On one hand, consider his remarkable stage setup, achieved via limitless resources, courtesy of the Stones. On the other hand, consider his hotel destructo act, achieved via unlimited chutzpah and drugs, also courtesy of the Stones. Comparing the SCP tour to a cult may sound ill-advised, but consider for a moment the charismatic and eccentric leaders who demanded loyalty, the copious drug use and exhaustion that wears down a person's individuality and ability to think rationally, plus the ever-increasing isolation from friends and family outside the tour, not to mention everyday reality in general. In such a situation, every STP badge wearer becomes a fellow soldier in the cause. Allegiance to the tour supersedes all human and ethnic ties. What does that sound like to you? I mean, when you're on the road, you feel you're in a special sort of state somewhere. You know, you're, I mean, you know what it's like. It's that, you know, whoever's in the group that's on tour, it's like you're not connected to the real world at all. And so everything has a different kind of value and a different meaning. You, know? you don't know where you are. You lose contact. It was so insular. You have to be all in, and Gary was, and so was I. You don't do anything else but where are we going, how are you, what's happening now, hey, great, what's going There's no other reality. You're also constantly in the moment. You've got nothing else. It's whatever you're doing. For those not in the band, the STP tour was a day pass into another world, and the rapid adjustment to this accelerated lifestyle was damaging to the body, mind, and soul. Tour manager Peter Rudge, widely hailed as the resident responsible adult in the room while on the road, was one of the few to escape the tour relatively unscathed. Dubbed the field marshal among the anarchists by no less an authority than Keith Richards, Rudge would share a telling observation to Robert Greenfield. So many people with the stones get emotionally involved, he said. They want to hang out and be with them. I found out right away about the power they have to completely eat people up. Because this business is a drug. I saw what it did to people on the tour. He may have been thinking about Gary Stromberg. I tried to party with them, so I'd stay up all night, and then I'd have to work during the day, so I didn't get any sleep. I mean, it cost me a lot. I mean, I ended up, I think, weighed 120 pounds when wow. I finished. I lost a lot of weight because I didn't, you know, wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping. I was a mess. <laughs> it's been a moment of insight for me for Gary to say that, you know, he became a Rolling Stone on the tour. See, that was Gary's first time around, first hit. With so them, yeah. I had been on that English tour. I really saw that if you got too close, you caught fire. You could not be Keith. You could not be mad. So I never, I'm alive today in talking because I never tried to be one of the boys or girls or boys and girls. I was always working. <clears throat> I was there to write a series of articles for Rolling Stone. And so I don't know. They respected me. They never you know, forced me to get high. And I got high with Gary because he was my friend on the tour. And Gary and I and Chris O'Dell were very close on the tour. We hung together. So I didn't, okay, here, <laughs> have to protect my image and what's left of my reputation. I did not have an active social life on that tour. I wasn't engaged with anybody. I didn't have any relationships with a woman. And Gary understands this. It's like the craziness was so prevalent, constant, and, and involving. And I was outside reporting because there was street action going on. So, you know, I, I didn't come off the tour needing to go into rehab at all because I was, I was always more moderate than they were. And moderate wasn't a word that you'd use to describe me, unfortunately. I wish it was. <laughs> 
Robert Greenfield confronted Keith Richards about the health of his friends Gary Stromberg and Chris O'Dell, both of whom had gotten caught in the crossfire hurricane of the STP chaos. Keith, for his part, generally seemed oblivious. This way of living had always worked for him. Still, you must have seen a lot of people, I mean, get into tours and get crazy from it. I mean, people, you know, get really involved, get... Bad. I mean, I think they deserve to get crazy, you know, for a bit, those people. You know, I didn't see any harm in Truman completely getting crazy for a week or two after a hectic tour. So what? You know, I mean, I mean I it's I not going to destroy him. Well, I mean, well, I mean more somebody like uh, Gary Stromberg or Chris, you know, who I think Chris certainly almost did destroy. Showtime often came as a relief, both a desperate break from the tedium and a form of psychic anchor. For guitarist Mick Taylor, it kept the whole tour venture from drifting into complete insanity. Well, it is a bit unnatural, really, except that once you get up on stage and start playing, you know, the conversation there that you want, you know, that's why you're doing it, really. It all leads up to that moment when you're actually going up on stage to play before an audience. Some nights, it was as though they brought Keith to the hall in a cage, and his hour and a half on stage was the only freedom he was going to get. He was dangerous and unpredictable, which made him exciting to watch. Unlike Jagger, who had a never-ending bag of stage tricks that could get a crowd on its feet, Keith was right there all the time, playing for his life. He possessed none of Jagger's aesthetic distance. It was never a performance for him. Keith was always putting out all he was worth, doing the best he knew how at that moment. One bit of Jagger's stage business provided a target for the preeminent prankster of the tour, Chip Monk. He'd begun hiding little surprises in the bowl of rose petals Mick scatters on the audience at the end of the band's Street Fighting Man finale. It had started relatively small, with a chicken leg in Detroit. Then it escalated to a great hunk of raw liver a few days later, which Mick unknowingly hurled into the audience. The kid on the receiving end returned the favor by hurling it back. For the next gig, Chip graduated to a full pig's foot, complete with hoof and knuckle. Mercifully, Jagger had gotten wise to his tricks and combed through the bowl before showtime, thus preventing some kid from going home with a welt on his forehead and being forced to tell his mother, I'm telling you, Mick Jagger hit me in the head with a pig's foot. The STP tour got crazy, but thankfully not that crazy. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This message comes from Viking. 
committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Looking for a fabulous fashion brand that celebrates you? Then look no further than Boston Proper, where styles are designed with you in mind, so you can look and feel amazing, no matter the day, season, or occasion. At bostonproper.com, you'll find fashion that knows you best. For over 30 years, Boston Proper has been the fashion destination for confident women who want to elevate their look with unique, sophisticated clothing at affordable prices. Visit bostonproper.com today. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. A major rock star sits in a car in the parking lot outside the Stones Hotel, compulsively fondling his hunting knife as he works himself into an angry lather. There's a cat in this hotel who's gonna get himself a blade, he rasped in a voice hoarse from cocaine. And that cat is Keith Richards. This serious rock dude is being deathly serious. In some circles, his penchant for knife play rivaled his reputation as one of the better singer-songwriters of his time. But too much time on the road, too much time in the studio, way too much coke, and generally too much time wallowing in rock and roll madness had led him deeper and deeper into his own special hole. Now he carries an expensive hunting knife around with him, one that's been pulled so often and flashed so many times that the blade comes out with a snap of his wrist like a cheap switchblade. He also owned a sword that he liked to swing back and forth across hotel rooms in samurai fashion, getting it nearer and nearer to someone's head, watching for their reaction as they silently prayed that he wasn't too wasted and wouldn't slip. Despite his fame, the rock star had become an object of pity among those in the scene. Music biz figures would greet each other with reports of his condition, and always it was the same sad story. Not much longer, man. He's really gone this time. I hear he's strung out. The rock star was a tightrope walker, balanced on a high wire with the crowd below watching breathless, waiting for the fall. And it's a damn shame they tutted self-righteously. Though his name is being withheld to protect the guilty, rest assured that the rock star is a brilliant musician, a singer of beautiful harmonies, composer of cherished generation-defining hits, and the guiding light between two foundational bands, one of which bears his name. Oh, what the hell. It's Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Sometimes Young. Stills has just been asked to leave Keith Richards' room, an impressive feat considering the company Keith kept. Despite the security arrangements, Keith's room was party headquarters. Occasionally, people no one had ever seen before could be found sitting on his bed, trying on his boots. Once or twice, they walked away in them. But Stills had found the hospitality lacking. He walked in with his hat over his eyes and his nostrils flaring, expecting them to be filled. Keith took offense to this sense of entitlement, and after some harsh words, Stills was told to get out, which is how he came to be sitting in a parking lot, hunched over and mumbling and fantasizing about stabbing him. Keith explained the altercation soon after to Robert Greenfield, here he is, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. He came on his usual, uh, he came on his usual acts, you know, but I just wasn't 
apt to sort of accommodate me at that particular moment and uh, I just thought he'd been rather greedy and rude and selfish, you know. I must say it's the first time I've had occasion to be rude to another musician for a long time, you know. And when I was in that mood, I didn't think I was being rude to another musician. I was just being rude to somebody who was being rude to me, you know. You know. I just took it for granted that he could walk in my room with his nostrils flaring and his hat over his eyes and, and wait for me to fill his nostrils up, you know. And so I just told him that, you know. Rock and roll's an easy business to lose your mind in, or lose your life in. If you had a lot of luck and a little talent, there were people who'd see to it that you got whatever you needed to keep working. Often this was drugs. It's been established that drugs was the rate of exchange in rock circles circa 1972. Any place you found music being made, you'd find people getting high. On tour, whatever you want is available. The Stones' private physician saw that. Five bottles of Demitol and a bottle of 500 Quaaludes are run through rapidly. So is a quart-sized jar of cocaine. This is of little concern because more is easily obtainable. Plus, most on the tour brought their own. Gary Stromberg is a rather novel storage device. Tell me if you remember. You kept your Coke in a prophylactic, in a rubber. Yeah, and I'm sure you, that's you true. You would swing it back and forth. <laughs> You'd have like a half ounce of Coke, you know. In, in a prophylactic? Well, yeah. that's smart. <laughs> Cocaine was the gold standard of drugs in the STP community. There were nights when they laid out $500 worth on a mirror in one long four-foot line. Out at restaurants, people brazenly began passing butter plates filled with white powder, the theory being that if you do it with enough style and flair, it's possible to snort anything without anyone taking undue notice. It's easy to feel invincible on tour with the Stones, especially after the cocaine. According to Bobby Keys, even the cops were indulging them. There was, a, there was this one instance, man, where a, a cat threw a, a joint up on stage and it hit me and bounced off, down rolled off down towards the foot of the stage, right by this cop. And the cop looks at the joint, picks it up, looks at me, holds it up and goes, you know, like, you make a motion, do you want it? And I go, you know, and he tossed it up to me. And I didn't know whether I thought, well, okay, now, do I take it? <laughs> Is he trying to set me up for a bus? Yeah, right. I mean, now, he gave it to me. <laughs> but, now, who's going to believe that? That's beautiful, man. But I took it. Yeah, that's basic paranoia. Is he set me up? Yeah. What's he doing to me? But I took it, man. The most promising new substance being abused was amyl nitrate, or amies to the initiated. Initially used to treat severe pain caused by heart attacks, they'd since been embraced for happier purposes, specifically pleasure enhancement during sexual encounters and also general amusement. Known as snappers on the East Coast and poppers in the West, their characteristic burnt odor surges up the nasal cavities like a flash fire in a wheat silo, setting the heart pounding and the brain rushing. Amy's are so noxious, carbolic, and obviously chemical but no one had thought to use them in any great quantity, until the STP tour, that is, when they were embraced with an evangelical fervor. 
We'll talk about Steve Madeo here. He's a great human being. Do you know not, who that is? Not with us anymore. Steve was the trumpet player for Stevie. Tell the word, story. Yes, Tell the story. So Steve ingratiated himself with Jim Price and, and Bobby Keys especially. Right, horn Because they're horn players. And so he hung out with the guys on the Stones. So we were in a, in a limo going from the airport to in some city. I don't even remember. But uh, Steve loved amyl nitrates. And what he would do is he would pop it and drop it into a cigarette packet, and then you could just sniff it in the cigarette package without the the fumes escaping. And so we were sitting in the back of the limo, and amyl nitrates, as you know, are it's a very powerful uh, hallucinogen. And so he popped this Amy in the back of the seat and passed it among there was three or four of us in there, and then he leaned over the front of, the, over the front seat, and he said to the driver, "Smell this. I think there's something wrong with my cigarettes." And the driver sniffed the, the amyl nitrate, and we're in like downtown New York, and he's sniffing the amyl nitrate, and and now it hits him, and he's going, "Whoa, whoa!" <laughs> he's screaming, "Whoa!" And he's swerving back and forth because he's lost control of himself, and they're in the back seat laughing their asses off. We could have easily got killed. Mateo thought this was so funny. And he would do that to, that was his thing, was he would pop an Amy in a cigarette thing and then ask you to smell it and then just watch how you reacted to it. Uh, this is worth discussing. That's called a felony, by the way, if, <laughs> <laughs> if you're getting arrested for that. Even Keith Richards was taken aback by the prevalence of Amy's and the relish with which they were consumed. Oh, I didn't know there was a sudden rebirth of the interest in amyl nitrates is unbelievable. There were so many of those things, people didn't know what to do with them, you know, I mean, I mean it's always, you know, when it's a matter of dope, everybody feels like you've got to use it. <laughs> Cracking boxes and boxes of them open. I mean, they were doing Amy's on stage. Yeah. They were bre stones, breaking them on stage, handing them to people on the side of this. Must have been through the doctor. How they got them? Yeah, because no yeah, one... Probably. I, I had never heard of... You know, I was in a culture. Nobody was doing amyl nitrate at that point. By the way, that's how we got away with this stuff, too, because the doctor would hold the drugs, and doctors were not searched. At the, uh, so they wouldn't search a doctor's... He has a little, like, black medicine bag. Though he didn't have a medical degree, Keith Richards could draw on knowledge that you can't get from books. He quickly became the STP crew's unofficial pharmacist and took great delight pawing through the doctor's little black bag. He knew the PDR, pharmaceutical director. He knew, Keith knew everything. And he was looking for what the special was that night. You know, what do I feel like having? You know, so casually taking all the time in the world. You're very interested taking out, you know, syringes and packets and ampules. <laughs> Keith was an indulgent pharmacist. It's not unusual for some member of the STP entourage, or even just some stoned local who got the invite, to mosey up to Keith at one of his hotel room parties. Listen, man, I'm dying. I got a sinus congestion. You got any APC? APC? What's that? Advil, man. My head's killing me. It's throbbing like hell. Keith plunges into the doctor's bag and produces a quaalude. Take one of these and come see me tomorrow, he says. This may sound irresponsible, but it beats the alternative. Some revelers who commandeered the doctor's bag were less likely to select pills for their function and more because the color matched their shirt or brought out their eyes. For Keith Richards, every drug was medicinal. 
Each provided the crucial function of relieving the boredom. The drug use is not an accident. It's no, a that's right. It's a way to keep moving and a way to keep functioning and a way to cope with the boredom, if that makes any sense. It makes it harder. I mean, what Keith said to me once in, in that interview, you know, the first time you do something, it's always good, it works, and then it stops working. Didn't keep him from doing it over and over, but it becomes a habit. What used to be vices are habits. It becomes a habit, you know what I mean? It's, it's just maintenance. They're just doing it on a level that keeps them in the groove and not thinking about anything else. That's what it is. This was the way generations of musicians had coped with the road, getting as high as possible and just going for it. Whatever the consequences, you accept them. Just focus on the music. As long as that's where your energy is, you're safe. This had been the unspoken credo of so many road warriors since the very recent birth of rock and roll. It marked its adherence as junkie outlaw scum in the eyes of many. Of all the Stones, Keith had best accepted that particular role. No matter how often the Stones were hosted by Hugh Hefner or courted by Truman Capote, the fundamental outlaw in his personality remained. But even he felt the need to take certain precautions when using. No sense making life more difficult, after all. This innate sense of self-preservation was shared by all the Stones, no matter how spaced they got. In order to know what they were doing, you had to be in the room using with them. And that's the way it always was. They had lived on the road for so long, and this is part of their persona, that even in the public eye, they knew how to protect themselves and keep things secret on the tour, which is such a small, insidious village. Yeah? They were geniuses, the Mick and Keith both. They had been on the road already so long at that point that they knew how to live among other people without those people ever going past a certain point. Jagger not. He didn't share his, his living quarters with anybody but the woman he was with. But Keith always had a circus, but he still had a place where you didn't go unless you were in the center ring with him. Yeah, that's who he was. A side effect of this built-in insulation is that it inadvertently split the band into separate social groups, loosely defined as those who used and those who didn't. Or more appropriately, those who used and those who used less. Separate power centers and cliques began to emerge. There's the tour management squad, the documentary film crew, the musicians and, er, second-tier stones, and of course, the inner circle, ruled by dual regents Mick and Keith. Slowly developing since their earliest days of the tour, these groups have codified into their own distinct duchies, and diplomatic relations weren't always maintained. As the STP caravan moves through the dog days of July with nothing very exciting going on, the tension within the traveling company begins to build. An internal storm is brewing. Last time the Stones toured America in 1969, all the chaos came from outside the organization, creating an us-versus-them dynamic that ultimately brought everyone together. Now, everything was going smoothly. Too smoothly. It's like a peaceful mountain lake that's so calm that it gets on your nerves, so placid that it makes you want to pick up the nearest, biggest rock and fling it as hard as you can, just to make some waves. The rock was finally thrown during the tour's stop in Indianapolis, 
when STP security chief Big Leroy Leonard beat up a friend of Keith Richards, thus setting off the tour equivalent of an international incident. The unfortunate man's name was Brad, and you could argue that he had it coming. Even the most debauched members of the Torah Coterie had recognized that this pale and wasted figure, compulsively clad in a black cape, was an influence that the Torah didn't need. They wanted him gone. He was a user, a hustler, an unlikable sponge with no function. The request for his removal would get passed up to Keith, who would veto it immediately. I'm paying for him. He's my friend and I need him. So he's staying. So Brad stayed. But then Brad pushed his luck a little too far. The STP crew gradually noticed a small group of dealers shadowing them at each tour stop. They always registered in the same hotel as the Stones and brazenly walked around as though they were part of the entourage. It's not impossible to know where the band's going next, but it is difficult to catch the correct hotel in every city. Clearly, someone on the inside was tipping them off. With the itinerary being fed to them, they're getting to the cities early and dealing in the streets outside the venue. By staying as close to the stones as possible, they get to share in whatever police protection had been laid out. And they've already made thousands of dollars by selling incense to kids, by telling them it's opium. They openly brag about the scam to Keith Richards, who briefly graces them with his presence before recognizing them for what they were, petty crooks who lack even the dignity of outlaws. If you're going to deal, deal. If you're going to rip people off, you're on your own. You met those cats. You, well, tell me about that. I mean, they were selling incense to incense, people. Incense. It's an incense a package of opium incense is the name of it. And they were selling it as opium. And they bragged about Opium prices, and they bragged about it. To you personally? Yeah. Figuring you would say groovy. Right. Okay. Fantastic. You know, what a beautiful ripoff. Yeah. How many of them were there? Three? There were four or five out on the road, and there must have been somebody else in New York or somewhere that was directing the whole thing, you know, supplying them because they, you know, close to us as possible to be, to be mistaken for our party, you know, so that they could walk in and out of the hotel and... Uh, so somebody was tipping them where you were going? So. Sure, somebody had an itinerary and... Uh, complete itinerary. How would you come to meet them? Did, you, did somebody take you to meet them or you knew about it? Someone told you what was going on? Oh, we noticed them around in like uh, cities a long way from where we'd seen them before, you know. I mean, they had to be there for some reason. And then some roundabout where we found out they were dealing, you know. But we didn't, I mean, I thought they were dealing straight, just straight dealers, you know. See what you could do. Right, so I went to see if we could make a deal ourselves. <laughs> of some kind, you know, since they were taking our protection to do it, you know, and then we found out what they were really up to, you know, and told to stay on. We told them to go, you know, and not to come back. It occurs to Brad that these young dealers are no longer under anyone's protection. They're defenseless in STP land, either in a genuine effort to persuade them to move on or merely an effort to line his own pockets. Brad gets some of the larger men in the STP crew together. Then he heads down to the dealer's room and starts demanding money. It's an old-fashioned New York City shakedown. Word of it quickly spreads throughout the tour of Grapevine. The story isn't flattering. Some guy in the caravan shaking down dealers with a stone security as muscle. It's a bad look. If these kids go to the authorities, everyone's in trouble. And for no reason, since the stones personally have nothing to do with this. 
The tour has been compromised. The stones are now vulnerable. And it's Brad's fault. He's going to have to go. Now the question is how to do it. Throw a sheet over Brad's head, comes one suggestion. Tie him up and leave him in his room with a do not disturb sign on the door. He'll die in the room. He'll suffocate. Well, we'll call from Detroit and tell him to let him go. Nah, it's no good. But something must be done. And fast. Keith will be a problem. No one wants to face him when he finds out they've thrown a friend of his off the tour. Maybe the dirty business can be done while he's on stage. But it has to be done. It's imperative. Brad is summoned to visit the room of security chief Big Leroy Leonard. Brad's now a security threat, and Big Leroy deals with him accordingly. He rolls him onto the bed and presses a pistol to his forehead. If you scream, I'll blow your brains out, he growls. Then Leroy begins beating him, pounding heavy punches into the bones of his torso so the black and blue marks begin welling up immediately. Each blow lands with a sickening wet squash of fist against tissue. All the punches are to the chest and ribs so that it hurts to walk and breathe, but nothing shows. Head lolling to one side, spittle dripping slowly out of one corner of his mouth, Brad gags for breath and begs. No more, no more, please. You leave this tour, comes the reply. You leave it now. You hear me? You've been hanging on too long. And when you leave, you don't know my name. But you leave now. Brad does. It doesn't take long for Keith to discover that his friend is missing. Predictably, he hits the roof. He eventually tracks Brad down to an airport and urges him back. Then he learns about his brutal beating. This sends Keith into a full-scale rage. He's sick of the STP crew buying things, doing things, saying things, all supposedly in his name. It's a weird feeling, you know. I mean, the classic one is uh, what Leroy did to Brad, you know. To, to, to take care of you, to protect you. Know, without asking me whether I needed taken care of, you know. And it's, it's kind of a hangout to be treated sort of like a, I mean, like Child. Prince Charles or something, you know what I mean? It's that kind of attitude, as if they know better what's for me than I do, you know. Though Brad wasn't exactly popular in the STP ranks, and his shakedown of those poor, stupid drug scammers was reprehensible, no one wanted him to meet this kind of fate, and many in the organization were horrified. Brad won't squeal on who rolled him, a rare display of character. Many assume it was Big Leroy Leonard, but he won't cop to it either. All Keith wants is to know who did it and why. But all he gets are empty stares and people saying they don't have time to talk to him. He gets madder by the minute. Brad may have made some poor choices, sure, but this was pure savagery. Brad completely misjudged the situation and he paid for it, you know. He misjudged Leroy's attitude to, to what he was doing and who he is, you know, and he paid for it the hard way, you know. I mean, Leroy did a real professional job on it. You know, he couldn't see a mark unless the guy took his shirt off, you know. 
good. It was just blank and blue. But you went crazy when you found out. I, mean, you I went crazy because nobody would fucking admit to doing it and, and, and saying it, even though there were a couple of people that knew about it, you know. I mean, fucking a friend of mine gets beaten up, you know, next door to me, and the cat that did it won't even say why he did it or the, even that he did it, you know. It's very frustrating, you know, especially, I mean, my own temper isn't particularly... Uh, long, that far into a tour, you know, I mean, I just wanted to know who done it and why they done it, I mean, I just came up across this sort of blank look, you know, I flipped out, you know, told them it was just fucking childish, you know, I mean, if he did it, I wanted to know the reason for why he done it, and, you know, instead of giving me some bullshit after the show that he thought it might affect my performance, you know, god damn, yeah. The rest of the band don't know what to think. They know the way that Keith lives and the people who surround him at all times. With this in mind, there's no way of knowing what really happened. Many approach Leroy for an explanation, but he's playing it the only way that someone who's come up from the streets can. He stares straight ahead, not speaking, totally denying all charges with his face and body, as well as with his eyes. For the first time, the STP party has to police itself. A meeting is held to determine the precise nature of the crime. The punishment was obvious. Tor banishment. The STP management are all in attendance, as well as Mick, Keith, Brad, and Big Leroy Leonard. It is, in essence, a hearing, with Mick Jagger as both the Grand Inquisitor and the presiding judge. Oh yeah, it was like a court case it was. It was a trial, wasn't it? It was like a trial. And it, it got the truth out. Because we said we're not leaving the room until we know the truth, and if we don't know the truth, then everybody that was concerned in it, Leroy, Brad, anybody else that was involved, whoever else, would be fired, irrespective. Like a courtroom, Robert Frank's documentary crew is barred from filming. But Frank attends anyway, as he has a vested interest in the case. Brad's sole legitimate function on the tour was to occasionally lend a hand on the documentary shoot. This technically placed him in the documentary clique of which Frank was the figurehead. The filmmaker was horrified that one of his own was so mistreated. Jagger had to take command. I mean, now it was up to the, to the big man to, to make a decision. He handled it terrific. I mean, he was very good, but the guy that was really held us all in his hand was Leroy sitting there, you know. Because he knew the truth and he wouldn't. Well, he was just more powerful. He was, he was more powerful than Jagger. He was more powerful than anybody because everybody was scared of him. Physically scared? Or? Physically, and just there was this guy, and he, he, he could do whatever he wanted to. It's incredible that he wouldn't admit what he did, I mean, through the whole, the plane Well, ride. the whole thing then, then centered only on begging Leroy just to, just to say, I did it. Like children, right? Yeah, yeah I said, you've been a bad boy, and now, you know, we understand you've been a bad just boy. Say just say please. And, and uh, then, finally, Leroy speaks. My job is to keep you out of trouble, so I'll say it and make you happy. I whipped the boy. I'm not proud of it, but it had to be done. This man was shaking people down in your name. You put it in my hands, and I did what needed to be done. There it was. A confession without remorse or guilt. It stops everyone cold. It's so out front that people start to think, well, he was only doing his job. And since no one much liked Brad anyway, it's easy to forget that he'd been beaten black and blue. Why punish a man for acting on an impulse that was in a lot of people's heads? 
let Leroy stay. Even Keith, supposedly Brad's friend, had to agree with the court's findings. I mean, nobody else really liked Brad and wanted him around. So everybody was sort of on Leroy's side, although they didn't agree with what Leroy had actually done. I, I agree that it's not, uh, in any ordinary situation, it is unjust, but it wasn't an ordinary situation. What everybody had to take into account was that if we'd had just told Leroy to go home, on top of us being suddenly uh, having our security cut down to just, uh, you know, half in one minute, if Leroy had gotten pissed off and mean about it, he, with his connections, his, you know, he could have maybe made it difficult for us in other places, you know. Thought you thought about that, though. Jagger orders Brad and Leroy to shake hands, and the meeting's adjourned. But there are some dissenting notes. Robert Frank and the rest of the film crew, basically the defense in this courtroom drama, are furious. They want Leroy thrown off the tour in the wake of his confession. Was Keith really going to allow his friend to get beaten up without punishment? But then, while talking to Robert Greenfield a short time later, Frank came to a crucial realization— the Stones didn't have friends on the road. They had employees. Your worth in the cult of STP was determined by how well you did your job, not the kind of person you were. A dealer, Brad. He's a dope dealer. But he's Keith's friend. Because he's a dope dealer. <laughs> well, uh, well, it comes down to that. They have no friends. I mean, they were, in that sense, there were no friends on the tour. Everybody had his position. And I think he failed in his position as a dope dealer, he didn't do too well. He didn't do it right. He made a mistake, so he was justified getting the shit beaten out of him. For Mick, it was about whatever was best for the tour. Firing the head of security midway through their cross-country trek just wasn't going to happen, especially when they were due to play New York, the northeast hub of the Hells Angels. So some people were outraged. I mean, I think Robert Frank particularly felt that a really you know, unjust thing had happened, and the decision that was made was made to keep the tour going. You know, probably true. Well, yeah, it was. It absolutely was. And I wasn't going to sacrifice anyone for that. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I wanted to keep the tour going. I didn't want to, you know, I mean, I'm not so I wasn't interested in the justice of it. This was justice, STP style. It can be boiled down to a single law. The show must go on. Road rules are cruel. At the end of the day, the only people the Stones were really loyal to were themselves. As far as Bill Wyman was concerned, outsiders were nothing but trouble. All the problems that ever arise with this band always arise from other people, people that shouldn't really be there. Always. We've always had those. We never had problems in the band. We never fought amongst ourselves. We hardly ever have even an argument, you know? And that's why we stay together so long. That's why we're, we're still together. Noel Brown and Jordan Runtalk. 
Edited and sound designed by Noel Brown and Michael Alder June. Original music composed and performed by Michael Alder June and Noel Brown, with additional instruments performed by Chris Suarez, Nick Johns Cooper, and Josh Thane. Vintage Rolling Stones audio, courtesy of the Robert Greenfield Archive at the Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections in Northwestern University Libraries. Stones Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.